Trust me, I'm like a smart person. From The Conversation, this is Trust Me, I'm an Expert, where we ask academics to surprise, delight and inform us with their research. I'm Sananda Cray. On this episode, we're talking about what one of Australia's biggest surveys and richest data sets, released today, says about how this nation is changing. And some of the trends may surprise you. The Household Income and Labour Dynamics in Australia, or HILDA survey, tells the story of the same group of Australians over the course of their lives. Starting in 2001, the survey now tracks more than 17,500 people in 9,500 households, asking lots of questions about their economic well-being, their health, their family life, and all sorts of other things. So what's this year's report tell us about where Australia's at? To explain it to us today is Roger Wilkins. He's Deputy Director of Research at the HILDA Survey at the Melbourne Institute of Applied Economic and Social Research at the University of Melbourne. He told us he was quite surprised by what this huge survey showed us about Australians' financial literacy, our energy use, how many of us are putting off getting a driver's licence, how our economy's changing and how our attitudes towards marriage and family life are shifting. Roger Wilkins spoke to The Conversation's Deputy Politics and Society Editor, Justin Bergman. Roger, in a nutshell, um, I'd love to start out by just hearing what the HILDA survey is and, and why this matters to people. So the HILDA survey is Australia's nationally representative longitudinal study of Australians. So it's uh, it started in 2001, and it's a bit like the ABS cross-sectional surveys we're familiar with, where we get information on people's employment, their family life, their incomes, uh, their health and well-being. But what distinguishes HILDA is that we're following the same people year in, year out. So we, 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 are, we are getting a, a moving picture of people's lives rather than the, uh, the, the cross-sectional snapshot or photograph that the ABS uh, surveys give us. So, so that's really what's unique about HILDA. And it, well, we're now entering our 18th year, so we're getting a, a really rich picture of how people's lives evolve over time. Uh, and it al- allows us to answer all sorts of questions that we couldn't do with cross-sectional data. Things like, if someone is poor in one year, how likely are they to be poor the next year? Uh, you can't answer that with cross-sectional data, but with our data, you can see how long, whether it's the same people who are poor year in, year out, or whether it tends to be a temporary uh, affair. And, and moreover, you can look at, well, who are the people who manage to get themselves out of poverty and who are the people who don't? And what are the, you know, this gives us uh, incredibly uh, useful information for policymakers about who are the people who are who are persistently struggling, for example, and, and therefore we should be thinking more about from a policy perspective. That's just one example of the many in terms of the value of uh, the HILDA survey. Yeah, and I'm, I realize there's probably a great deal of data to pour through and lots of interesting findings we're going to get into in this podcast. What, were there any that you found particularly surprising or interesting um, just off the top? Well, we have been tracking people's household expenditure since 2005, and that includes uh, their expenditure on home energy, things like electricity and gas. So we thought, well, there's been a lot of uh, attention recently to rising prices for electricity and gas. So we thought, well, well, let's have a look at what's been happening to household expenditure. Rather, So that's different to the price because this is the, the, your expenditure depends on not only the price, but how much of the energy you use. And one thing that surprised me was that uh, the HILDA data showing that people's expenditure actually peaked in around 2014. 
So since then, people have actually been uh, decreasing their expenditure uh, in real terms, at least, adjusting for inflation. Uh, so that that was something that I wasn't expecting because uh, there's been a lot of recent uh, media about prices continuing to rise uh, since 2014, um, and and yet expenditure hasn't been rising since 2014. And what it seems like is that people are uh, have been adapting to these higher prices and, and doing things like buying energy efficient appliances, uh, insulating their homes, installing solar panels, uh, perhaps heating uh, fewer rooms in the house in winter. That sort of thing seems to have been going on so that, as I said, um, the total expenditure on home energy has actually declined slightly since 2014. Great. And well, one of the interesting uh, chapters that, that we, we thought was, um, was quite surprising was the one about measuring cognitive ability. And uh, I wanted to ask you, starting, starting off, what, what are the factors that you looked at in this chapter uh, when it comes to what contributes uh, to cognitive uh, decline? Yes. So uh, we have now, in two years, in 2012 and 2016, administered uh, these uh, tests, which are called cognitive ability tasks. They ask the respondents to perform various activities, which allow us to produce measures of their cognitive functioning or their cognitive ability. And because we've, as I said before, we're following the same people year in, year out, we can actually look at how cognitive, these measures of cognitive ability changed between 2012 and 2016. And we do indeed find that, uh, particularly at uh, at the older end of the age spectrum, that uh, there is considerable cognitive decline, that people's performance on these tests uh, does decline, uh, particularly once you sort of get over the age of 70, 75. Uh, that's when we really start to see uh, the, the declines uh, becoming a, a quite sizable. Uh, so, so one of the things that we did in this year's report is looked at whether there were things other than age that were predictive of cognitive decline. And we were particularly interested in whether there were various cognitive activities or other activities that you might engage in that could protect against cognitive decline. So we looked at things like uh, how often you do puzzles, things like crosswords, uh, how often you read, how often you uh, write, uh, whether you use a computer regularly, uh, whether you do any volunteering, whether you're actually doing any paid employment, uh, how often you look after grandchildren, these sorts of activities on, 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 the, on the basis that perhaps the more stimulated you are cognitively, uh, the less decline you'd experience. And the overriding result we found is that very little seems to uh, protect against cognitive decline. We find uh, some evidence for in favour of doing puzzles regularly, things like crosswords, where on one of the measures of cognitive ability, it, does, it did seem to reduce the extent of decline. But broadly speaking, um, most of these cognitive activities uh, didn't seem to, to impact uh, on the extent of decline. So, but doing puzzles was one that you saw that did mm -hmm. have an impact. Um, any any idea why that might have been? Uh, well, I mean, the the logic is that uh, it's sort of the use it or lose it for, uh, argument that uh, if you're using your brain, uh, then um, it's in the same way as if you are exercising a muscle, it keeps it in better condition. Uh, that that's sort of the logic, um, and it seems. But for some reason, we don't, for example, find that with writing regularly. Um, that's probably uh, is suggestive that doing your crosswords or Sudoku or or the like is is, is perhaps uh, not a bad idea, particularly if you enjoy doing them, um, because that might be having this beneficial uh, side effect. We also looked at uh, perhaps what you think of as behaviours that might be uh, um, 
adverse to uh, cognitive functioning. So in particular, things like smoking and drinking. Uh, and there is some evidence that uh, heavy consumption of alcohol uh, does accelerate cognitive decline, but we don't find any effects of, of smoking. Yeah, very interesting. So do, do your puzzles, but try to avoid the alcohol yes. as much as possible. Um, <laughs> Sounds like common sense, doesn't it? <laughs> <laughs> so it go, going on to the chapter about um, people driving in Australia, what did you notice about the data on, on driver's licenses? Yes. Well, I mean, uh, as people uh, would, would not be uh, surprised to learn that most people do have um, do have a driver's license, although uh, a surprising, like, well, for me at least, a quite a, a surprisingly high proportion of young people, sort of in the 18 to 24 range, don't have a driver's license. So m- while most people, over 90%, eventually get their license, uh, for for many of them, it's not until their late 20s or or their, even their 30s when they do get their license. So for example, in the 18 to 19 range, over a third of people in that age range uh, don't have a driver's license. Uh, and, that, and that's something that uh, uh, we see in just the four-year period between 2012 and 2016, uh, when we ask people uh, whether they have a driver's license. Even over that short period, we have seen a decline in the extent, uh, in, the, in the proportion of people who have a driver's license in that age range. So uh, it, w- whether that's because um, uh, the requirements in order to pass the test have been tending to, to ramp up in most states. Uh, I'm not sure. Um, certainly, there, obviously, there have always been significant costs for obtaining a license, which might be a barrier for young people. Um, but I'm not sure that um, you know, the extent to which those costs have increased, for example, requiring logbooks with a certain number of hours of driving. I'm not sure exactly the timing of when those uh, those increases in requirements have, have occurred. But certainly, the data is showing a, an increasing proportion of young people without a license. Right. And on the opposite end of the spectrum, um, you, we also noticed that uh, a large number of, of people in the older generations have uh, driver's licenses. And mm-hmm. spe- specifically, we found that, or that you found 74.6% of men born in the 1920s still ha- held a license in 2016. Um, so what does the data tell us about older mm. people with driving? Yeah. Well, so, I mean, I, I, I think... Uh, certainly, we see that uh, loss of license, so whether it's relinquished it or having it cancelled, is, uh, is is very much concentrated amongst older people. Uh, although surprisingly, for me at least, a surprisingly high proportion of young people do uh, seem to lose their license over a four-year period. So, you know, you know at least sort of two to three percent of people in their twenties and thirties reported that they had a license in 2012 and they didn't in 2016. Uh, now, the extent to which that's because they uh, had a, a traffic violations uh, that resulted in suspension or cancellation. I'm not sure we didn't ask why they didn't have a license, um, but that, that did surprise me. But certainly the rates of, of loss of license are much higher amongst the older age groups. But as you said, 70, you know, nearly three quarters of, of men in, born in the 1920s, so they're all, uh, I guess, at least... Uh, 86 years old in 2016, uh, so at least three three quarters of, uh, or nearly three quarters of, of men aged 86 and over um, still held a driver's license. Uh, and uh, that does uh, it certainly seem quite high, and it's certainly a lot higher than amongst women. So it's, it does seem like men hang on to their licenses a lot longer. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean that they're driving, that you can have a license without driving, but it's probably... Um, strongly correlated with driving, uh, uh, so it do, it does suggest that uh, partic- you know, particularly men are uh, are able to hang on to their license uh, to to longer than, or or are willing to hold on to them longer than, than women. 
Interesting. And what was the difference between the men and the women in that statistic? Do you have it in front of you? Uh, look, I, I, <laughs> I don't have it right on me. I, I think uh, it was in the order of 45 to 50% of women in the same age range. Okay. That um, is pretty significant. Yeah. Um, and m- moving on, can you tell us a little bit about what the data showed us about um, self-employed workers uh, that you found interesting or surprising in the latest survey? Yes, yeah, so it's uh, certainly what is interesting is that self-employment has been declining this century. So uh, at least the proportion of people in in the labour market who describe themselves as self-employed uh, has been decri- declining for the last uh, sixteen plus years, uh, and that's especially concentrated on on people who employ others. So we're we're really talking here about a decline in small business. Uh, and uh, and this was this is uh, I guess rather at odds with a lot of the rhetoric we see amongst politicians about how small business is the engine of the economy and 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 where growth in jobs comes from. And the evidence is quite to the contrary that uh, uh, that in fact our employment growth has really not come from small business or from uh, self-employment. It's really been coming from uh, larger. Uh, employers, be they medium or or or, uh, or large businesses, uh, and I think, given what we're observing in the trends, I think that's something that over coming years will continue. That uh, uh, that you know, it's it's probably, to my view, a bit wrong-headed to think that uh, that stimulating employment in small business is the way to generate jobs in the community more broadly. I think uh, the changing structure of the economy is actually moving us further away from that uh, than towards it. And uh, and in that context, it's also interesting that for all the talk about the rise of the gig economy, you know, th- these, uh, these jobs that are, uh, I guess, uh, facilitated by apps on phones and things like that, things like Uber and uh, Deliveroo and things like that, we don't see evidence in the data of much growth in employment of this kind. So, so as I said, self-employment has actually been uh, declining. You might think, well, maybe many of these gig-type jobs are secondary jobs, so that you know, so that while people in their main job are employed, perhaps in their second job they're uh, they're a, a gig worker you know, doing some Uber driving on the side. But we haven't seen a growth in multiple job holding either. So, uh, it seems so far that most of these. Uh, gig jobs have really been about transforming jobs that already existed. So taxi drivers have always tended to be self-employed. Uber drivers are self-employed. We've just we've got sort of a compositional change, a bit of a shift away from traditional taxis towards these these Uber uh, drivers. Same with I guess food delivery. The, you know, casual observation would suggest that there has been a rise in uh, these gig type jobs, but uh, um, I think. It's easy for us to over overestimate uh, how significant a phenomenon this is. Yeah, that is really interesting, actually. Um, well, and we we're also quite surprised by you know some of the things we see in the attitudes toward marriage and family changing. And um, I was curious what, what you're seeing in terms of attitudes in Australian society becoming more progressive on this front. Mm-hmm. Yes. Uh, well, you've uh, you've you've essentially summed up what we find. Uh, we we uh, well for a long time now we've been tracking people's attitudes to marriage and family and to uh, parenting and paid work. So this this, uh, allows us to produce measures of the extent to which people have what we might call progressive views, So, uh, which uh, in very loose terms is uh, the extent to which uh, people are in favour of men taking a more active role in raising children and women taking 
uh, a greater role in bringing in the, the the household income, so being more engaged in in the labour market. That there are other uh, dimensions to these measures of of of, of traditional of traditional views versus progressive views, um, but that's that's probably the most important uh, dimension, and uh, and we're certainly seeing that views are becoming considerably more uh, progressive. There's been quite substantial change over the course of this century. What to me was interesting is that when you actually look at then at how behaviour is changing, that doesn't. It, it seems that these changes in attitudes aren't really translating so far into much change in how people behave. So, and this is very much connected to the arrival of children. So before children arrive, uh, men and women have quite similar looking uh, division of, of, of their, of their labour in terms of the amount of time they spend in employment, the amount of time they spend on housework and so forth. It's quite similar. But once the first child ar- ar- arrives, and I probably don't, this is probably not news to any uh, anyone who's had kids uh, out there, but uh, a sharp divide opens up between men and women, that uh, women withdraw to a large extent from the labour market, and men, to a large extent, withdraw from from the home production, if you like, from the from the housework and and the care. And what's really interesting is how this persists. So even once the children age and move through school and even beyond, we still see this division persisting. So the arrival of the child precipitates a change, which even so even even when the care requirements of the children diminish and 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 so forth, um, we, we still see this uh, divi- uh, this divide between men and women uh, persist. So uh, there are, I think there are good economic explanations for this, uh, but I also think that there are reasons from a public policy point of view for us to be concerned about this. And really it relates to the fact that we know probably around one in three marriages will end in divorce, maybe more, maybe, maybe a bit less going forward. That therefore means that um, women are much more vulnerable in that post-divorce world than men because they put their careers on hold. Their income earning potential is considerably lower than men's. uh, And so therefore their um, their, their economic well-being is likely to be lower than men's post-divorce, um, and also, and then that has f- flow-on effects into their retirement living standard because their superannuation contributions will be lower. So I think uh, while it might make economic sense for for men and women to specialise in this way, it is having this uh, undesirable. Uh, longer-term consequence for women's well-being, and that's why we do see you know, higher rates of poverty amongst uh, single women, particularly single-parent women and elderly single women, uh, than we see for men. Interesting. And I don't know if you've tracked these um, this data for same-sex couples as well. Did, have you noticed any uh, divisions in terms of attitudes toward housework and, and um, the divide and in, in ter- yeah, other types of marriages? No, so we haven't looked at that this year. One of the uh, problems in doing so uh, is that the HILDA survey is a sample survey. So while we have 17,500 people from right across Australia, uh, which gives us uh, a a lot of potential to uh, produce reliable estimates on what is happening in the community, when you look at particular demographic subgroups, uh, it becomes more difficult to make reliable statements um, ab- about uh, overall trends. So, so, so while uh, same-sex couples are a significant minority in the community, they are still quite a small part of the the Hilda survey sample. So, it becomes a bit more difficult to 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 be uh, confident uh, in in estimates based on on small demographic groups like that. Right. Okay. And just wrapping up. Um 
you know, looking at the data as a whole, uh, I'm curious what story you think it's telling about how Australia is going, um, how it's changing, where it's going at the moment. Yeah. Well, I mean, for all its problems, and there are, of course, many, the clear picture from the Hilda survey is that Australia is a, you know, it's a well-functioning society in which most people feel able to pursue fulfilling lives, that pursue their aspirations and and uh, and live the life or a form of the life that, that they uh, aspire to. You know, so while, of course, there is much to do to make our society work better, you know, I don't think we... Uh, you know, we, we, we risk making some big mistakes moving forward if we aren't cognizant of how much is already working quite well. So I think that's, you know, that's something that probably gets lost a bit in a lot of public discussion and, and media. We tend to focus on the negative and, uh, and that creates, I think, an impression of a of much greater dysfunction in our in our, in our society uh, than is, is actually the case. Now, you always got to be yeah, it's it's always a you know I always very quickly follow up such a statement with a, you know, the caveat. Of course, there are problems, and 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 Hilda certainly identifies many of of, of these problems and concerns that we should be uh, addressing. But I, I guess there's always the risk of of overreacting and therefore damaging things that are good about our community um, in in seeking to solve some other problems. So. That said, you know, what concerns, what sort of trends come out of the data that would be of concern? Well, I think the declining, the decline in home ownership is a very big uh, concern, and that has a very strong link to growing evidence of uh, intergenerational inequality. So, particularly younger people in the sort of age range up to around forty, um, compared with older people, the baby boomer generation. There's um, th- there's been a growth in inequality across the generations, and it's very much. Uh, tied to home ownership, we're also uh, you know, we have this persistent disadvantage among many single parents, and I think that's a, uh, a continuing priority for for policy, in my view. Uh, and the other persistent trend that remains a concern is is that household incomes are quite stagnant, and uh, uh, and and that's very much related to uh, the stagnation in, in wages. It's one thing to be concerned about it, but it's it's less obvious what you do to uh, to address it. Roger, thank you so much. Very illuminating. Um, We really appreciate you breaking it down for us and taking the time to be with us. Thank Thank you. you. Trust Me, I'm an Expert is a podcast from The Conversation, where we bring you the stories, ideas and insights from the world of academic research. Special thanks today to Roger Wilkins from the University of Melbourne and Justin Bergman, The Conversation's Deputy Politics and Society Editor. Our theme beats are from Uncle Ho in Elephant Tracks. You can see a full list of music credits on our website at theconversation.com. And while we've got you here, if you like Trust Me, I'm an Expert, check out the monthly podcast The Anthill from our colleagues at The Conversation UK. Their latest episode is all about confidence, how it works in the brain, and how it can help us get ahead in life. Here's a clip from Dan Bang at the University College London. Confidence, it has many definitions, and it's been defined in many ways over the years. But I think an emerging consensus, at least a working definition of confidence, is that it's some graded feeling or graded sense of the probability or the likelihood that a belief is correct. So, for example, you might have a belief that you will be able to cross the street before an oncoming car would hit you. And that might be associated with a sense of the probability that that's going to happen. That's The Ant Hill from The Conversation UK.